Father, as we look at the heartache and pain of this past week, I'm reminded of Jesus' words, blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Tragic shootings have left us once again in shock of the power of hate that would cause a neighbor to kill another neighbor. We lament that the world we are living in is broken and we are in desperate need of your kingdom to break through. Lord, help us to love our neighbor in a time where hateful rhetoric seems to be in vogue. May we be people who love our neighbor who does not look like us, who does not vote like us, and who does not think like us. As we're learning about saints and exemplars, may we learn from Father Abraham, the father father of Judaism, who did not live a life of fear, but opened all four corners of his tent to the outsider, welcoming everyone who crossed his path. Help us not to become afraid, but help us to live with open doors and open arms as well. It is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Thank you for leading us in that prayer, Andrea. I want to invite you to turn uh, your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. It is the New Testament uh, lectionary text for us, even while we look into the lives of saints. And uh, I have some friends who have Bibles. If you don't own a Bible or you don't have a Bible, if you just want to raise your hand, somebody would like to bring you a Bible, you can borrow one. I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation. Just raise your hand. Somebody will lend you one. And if you don't own a Bible, you can keep this as your own. And uh, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 28. And I would also like to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word for us this evening. So hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel writer Mark. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well, so he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one and the only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of religious law replied, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of God for the people of God. And let us say together, thanks be to God. You you may be seated. So, It is All Saints Day, and the saint that we want to uh, remember and think about and tell the story of tonight is a very complicated but a very influential person, and his name is John Wesley. I believe I have a picture of John, perhaps. There he is, handsome man. John Wesley was probably one of the most influential characters in the 1700s, and he had a huge influence in Europe and in the United States. He was the reluctant founder of the Methodist movement and then the Methodist church of 
whom we have spun off of, if I can end with a preposition. My mom's going to be mad at me for that. Okay? In a recent poll, Wesley was number 50 on the list of top 100 Brits of all time. He was born to Samuel and Susanna Wesley in 1703 in the Lincolnshire village of Epworth in England. His father, Samuel, was an interim pastor, and then he was a Navy chaplain, and then he was a freelance writer before he was finally named rector, which is like the pastor in the Church of England, which we know to be the, the Anglican church. Now, from time to time, his dad, Samuel, struggled with He struggled financially a little bit. He struggled with debts, and he did not always see eye to eye with the parishioners that were in his church. I was feeling this a little bit as I was preparing. Just kidding. In one instance, in in one instance, he was put into debtor's prison because he made a parishioner that he actually owed money mad. So the parishioner put him into prison. Uh, Wesley's mother, Susanna, was a remarkable woman. She was an intellectual giant. She was the youngest of uh, 25 children. And she was the favorite of her father. And because of that, she had educational opportunities that many others did not. She was, she was what we would call a liberated woman. But she was confined to the typical female roles of the 1700s. Uh, but even though that happened, she always found a way to express her point of view. So together, Samuel and Susanna had 19 children, but only nine of them survived. Susanna ran the house with discipline, and she committed herself to the education of her children insisting even that the girls do their reading and learn how to read before they learn how to do womanly work that society wanted them to do. She was the homeschool mom extraordinaire. She even took care of things there when Samuel was in prison. When, when he was locked up, she carried the responsibility of the parish. She even, she even did this even though she wasn't supposed to because she was a woman, because she couldn't and because she couldn't preach at the church, she started to host services in her home for the servants and the neighbors, which was a no-no. And, and the service was went like this. They would sing together, and then they would read scripture, and then she would preach one of Samuel's sermons. And before long, everybody started coming. There were more worshiping in her home in the evening than were worshiping at church. And at one point, there were over 300 people that were attending it was like mega church of the 1700s. Samuel was married to this strong, smart, free-thinking, and incredibly stubborn woman. And as you can imagine, it made for some really it made for really interesting conversations in their marriage. So letters demonstrate that uh, they had affection for one another, but there were times that their marriage was rocky. Early on in their marriage, during the morning prayers with the family, Susanna did not say amen at the conclusion of Samuel's prayer. So he he had prayed in his prayer for the king, who was William of Orange, and later Samuel was offended, he was offended, so he confronted Susanna, and he wanted to know why she refused to say amen at the end of the prayer. Well, England was in a little bit of a political upheaval at that time, 
And Susanna believed that William had unlawfully overthrown James II, whom she thought was the rightful king. Samuel, on the other hand, like most people of the day, had a, had a, had a deep belief in divine right. He believed that the king was divinely appointed by God, and to disobey the king was to disobey God. And because of this agreement, Samuel said, you and I must part. If we have two kings, then we have to have two beds. And then he fell down on his knees, and he called down the wrath of God on himself if he ever touched her or went to bed with her until she begged for God to pardon her sin. Well, that, that made her mad. So she, so she argued that his oath was a violation of their mar- marriage vows, and he had a conjugal obligation to her, and it was just as great as hers was to him. I can just hear her saying, remember that time when I told you I had a headache? That's funny, people, married people. Well, Samuel, it, it, it went bad. It broke bad, and Samuel ended up leaving her when she could not agree with his politics. She was to raise kids on her own, and this woman did it. Later, when William of Orange died, Samuel and Susanna, they they, they found that they agreed upon the successor, who was Queen Anne, Uh, and so because they agreed upon it, he came back. And apparently, they made up because... And the wrath of God didn't fall on either one of them because a year later, John, Jackie was what they called him, was born. So he had, John Wesley had the characteristics of both of his parents. He had the characteristics, the affinity of religion and and church that came from his dad and the intellect and the stubbornness which, which came in full force from his mother. But there were events that happened in John's life that, that shaped who he was in the, the event that took place in his childhood that was the, one of the most important events in his life happened on February the 7th of 1709 when he was about five years old. That, that night, John's older sister, Hetty, woke up and, and she saw that there in the house there were flames all around her. The house was this raging blaze. She went to wake up her parents and Samuel and the maid ran around the house trying to grab all the children so that they could get out. Susanna, however, was pregnant. Surprise. And she was too ill during that time to get up, and she didn't think she was going to make it out alive. But, but she said this prayer, asking for strength, and she, and she stumbled out the front door naked. There they were, this family, outside there in the front, and they began to count heads, making sure they had all the children, and they realized that one of the children was missing. Jackie was up in the attic, and he he was asleep. And Samuel then went back into the house, tried to run up the stairs, but they were burning, and they collapsed under his feet. And there was no way for him to get up there to save John. He was sure that the boy was going to die in that fire, so he came to the front. He gathered his family around him to pray and to commend little John's soul to the Lord. Now, John was sleeping up there in that attic, And he woke up because of the light, and he realized that the house was on fire. So he climbed onto a chest to peer out the attic window. And by this time, there were these onlookers that were gathering. And together, they all saw, all the neighbors saw the little boy's face in the window. And that's when several men decided to make a human ladder 
and managed to get John out. This is a, this is a painting of that event. Nothing in the house was saved, but Samuel called his neighbors together now there in the front with the family, and instead of praying a prayer of commendation, they prayed prayers of gratitude. Samuel is recorded as saying, he has given me all eight children. Let the house go. I am rich enough. Records also show us that Samuel was convinced that, the bur- that this was arson, that the house started on fire, and it was started on fire by a person in his congregation. He was convinced of this. Susanna Wesley, though, was convinced that God had providentially saved John for some divine purpose. And she gave him a, na- a nickname. She claimed he was a brand plucked from the burning, which comes out of the Old Testament. When John was 10, he was, just, he was just this little guy. He was just 10 years old. He left the homeschool learnings of his mom, and he was sent to, he was sent to boarding school, which is a charter house school in London. I, I've got a picture here. looks a little bit like Harry Potter. And he was there for six years. And while he got a good education there, he was a victim of some pretty serious bullying. It, it reminded me of my junior high days. The other kids would, would pick on him. The bigger kids would pick on him. And then they would steal his food. And he talks about having to hide bread in order to eat. And he says this was a time in his life where there was a lot of suffering and where his faith waned. And there was a lessening of, of spiritual fervor, he says. But the academic rigor that happened here in school prepared him for the future. And he was given the ability, he was accepted to the Christ Church College at Oxford in 1720 when he was only 17 years old. And at Oxford, he was a typical college kid. He went to the theater, he played sports, he played tennis, he, he, was, he, he rode boats, he He rode horses, he went to parties, he dated girls, he hung out with friends, all the things that college students do. But in 1724, he enrolled in what what we would probably call a master's degree, and he started teaching a little bit in 1725 when he got a fellowship at Lincoln College there in Oxford. Now, several things happened all at once for Wesley, as what usually happens to most of us in our young adult years. But one of the major things that he did was he read, he read a couple of really important books that, tremended him, uh, it, it, that impacted him tremendously. The first was Jeremy Taylor's series, Rules and Exercises for Holy Living and Rules and Exercises for Holy Dying. And some would say that after he read this book, he, he, made a, he consecrated his life to God in a way that he had, he had never done before. And then he read Thomas Akempis's famous book, The Imitation of Christ. Y- you can read that book even now. It's been translated a million times. It's a fabulous book, one that I would suggest that you read. So what this did was it solidified some things for Wesley, and he became very, and I cannot emphasize this enough, very, very serious about religious matters. Just like his mother, he was vigorous in his pursuit of godly things. But it was more than that. He was militant. He was rigid. He was harsh. He was overly diligent. And while he was religious, he wasn't exactly pleasant to be around. Now, the other significant thing that happened to Wesley during this time was that his brother Charles, who later became a famous songwriter, also was at Oxford. And he began to meet with Charles and another man named William Morgan. 
and together they, with just a few other people, began to meet for prayer and Bible study. And this was just what Wesley needed in order to fulfill his disciplined faith. They would meet regularly, they studied the Bible, they met for prayer, they fasted for long periods of time, they kept meticulous journals about everything, even even naming the times that they had sinned throughout the day. Like, you want to remember that. They even remembered all of their sins and wrote them down. And then they, in a response to their new discipline, would they, they would go visit the poor and they would provide for poor children and their parents and they would visit people in jail. Now, these were college kids that were doing this. Now, some really appreciated their discipline. Some thought it was wonderful. Others thought it was incredibly harsh and very extreme. The people around them who were, people around them who, uh, were critical of them called them the Holy Club or the Methodists because of their strict methodological uh, discipline. And instead of taking it as an insult, they then adopted the name and said, yeah, that's what we are. We're the Holy Club. Now, I went to a Christian university, and I wasn't a religion major, but there were religion majors there. And, and some of the religion majors actually read this story, and they started their own Holy Club. They sat by themselves and you were unable to sit with them or engage with them unless you were willing to abide by their standards and their rules. Uh, those who were uh, critical of Wesley and his friends called them the Holy Club. Dorks is what we call this group at my college. And while this was happening here at Oxford, the prison system, the things that were happening politically were, were just a disaster. In- England's prison system was all out of whack. Uh, The debtors' prisons were so full that they decided that the newest colony in America, the one called Georgia, would be the place that that they would send those prisoners to work and pay off their debts. So someone came along and invited John and Charles to go to America, to go to Georgia, and preach to the criminals and evangelize the Native Americans. Well, he thought about it for about a month, and then he decided to go, jumping on a ship. But on the way to the Americas, the ship was caught in this this terrible storm. People were freaking out, including the ship's crew. They were going crazy. Wesley was terrified. He thought his death was imminent. He was screaming. But there was this religious group on board called the Moravians, and he was astonished that they They had no fear. They weren't scared at all. Here he was facing death, and it was terrifying to them. But even the Moravian children, he was so surprised because even the Moravian children acted as if they had some sort of deep assuredness. They had a security and a peace as they were in that storm. He was so ashamed about the way he reacted, and he couldn't understand it, but he wrote in his journal, They face death with a calm assurance. This is the most glorious sight I've ever seen. They just calmly sang on. And like that ship's ride to Georgia, his stay in Georgia was a disaster as well. He quickly found out that the people didn't like his preaching at all. He was so rigid and so bound up in his disciplines and his Anglican rules that he wasn't flexible at all. At one point, this woman came to him and wanted her to baptize her child, and he wouldn't do it because she didn't want to do it the Anglican way. People hated him. 
One parishioner named William Horton said to him, I like nothing you do. I love it when I get those kinds of notes in the mail. I, I like nothing you do, and everyone feels the way I do. Indeed, there is not a woman or a man in town who minds a word you say. He had to be feeling real good about himself. Not only that, but he had these romance troubles in Georgia, too. While he was there, he fell sick, and he, he almost died. And a woman named Sophie Hopke uh, nursed him back to health. And they had this on-again, off-again romance. Together, they would be together, and then one of them would get jealous, and then they would have a fight. And apparently, one time, they were on a break. There's your friend's reference. And she went off while they were on a break, and she married a guy that he had never even heard of. He was so mad, and he was so humiliated that he, he tried to, I can't believe he did this, he tried to bar her from communion. Her, her beha- his behavior was so outlandish and so out of order that a grand jury was appointed to review the issue, and he, he was facing jail time. So on August the 31st of, excuse me, August the 17th of 1737, humiliated and with his reputation destroyed, he, left, he leaves Georgia under the cover of night. His girl's gone, his job's gone, his friend's gone. His life is the first Georgian country song. Now the law is looking for him, and he leaves town, walks 40 miles, that, walks 40 miles through the woods and the swamps till he finally gets to South Carolina where he eventually jumps on board a ship and heads for home. And on this ship, he begins, to, he begins to reflect on his life. He absolutely hates himself. He thinks about his disbelief. He thinks about his pride. He thinks about his religious inattention. He was a miserable failure. And at one point, he writes in his journal, I went to the Americas to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? And I think this is the part in which we should Really listen to Wesley's story. It's because it's a turning point in Wesley's life. And frankly, what happens in him parallels my story. Wesley was meticulous. Strict in pursuit of obedience to the church and to God. He did everything the right way. And he pursued it with religious fervor and passion. He knew about God. He studied about God. He studied God's laws. He followed God. He even went and ministered to the poor and visited the sick. But he was absolutely lost. And he lacked a clear assurance of his salvation. He knew that he did not trust God. And he did not believe that God accepted him. Well, in 1738, shortly after he gets home, by means of God's grace, God's grace meets him in a man named Peter Bowler. And Bowler, also a Moravian, started to spend time with Wesley, and he talked to him about about a unique and a beautiful concept. He said that salvation comes to us from faith alone. So he said to Wesley, you should start seeking this sort of faith. In fact, he would urge Wesley in his, in his preaching, meaning Wesley wanted to quit preaching, but Bowler said, don't quit preaching. In fact, he said, keep preaching this message. Even if it is difficult for you to believe, preach the message until it becomes real in you. This is what we do here at the 8th Street Church. We participate in practices of belief 
even when we are people of doubt. We come to this table. Sometimes we bring our doubts. We serve and we give even in our doubts, and we do so because we are practicing our way into faith. We are trying to story our way into faith. We're trying to act out of faith into faith existence. Uh, Wesley desperately, while he did not love himself and he did not know this God that he talked about, he desperately wanted to. He wanted to have an assurance of his salvation, but he could not find it. He wanted to have confidence in God. He wanted to know that his sins were truly forgiven and that he could be reconciled to God. And he wanted to know desperately the favor of God. And Peter Bowler, his friend, showed him this way and he said, keep on preaching this message until it finds you. And it did. It found him on May the 24th, 1738. It, it, it was when he ended up, he, he ended up calling this his, his Aldersgate experience. And while listening uh, to the reading of Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, the great reformer listening to his, his commentary uh, to the introduction of Romans, he had an experience that he later recalled in his journal. He said, in the evening, I went unwillingly to a society meeting, which is like a, a Wednesday night kind of Bible study there at Aldersgate Street, where, where one was reading Luther's introduction to the epistle to the Romans. And about a quarter before nine, he could name it, while, while describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and he saved me from the law of sin and death. He wrote this in his journal. The assurance that Wesley was looking for came to find him. It came for him, and it did not come because he was obedient. It came as a matter of grace. Later, he described this assurance of the love of God for him. He said, I realized that God truly loved me. He discovered that, in, that he was indeed loved by God. Do you remember when Wesley's mother called him a, a brand plucked from the burning? This metaphor, this story became, this story became the metaphor for for salvation, but for all of Wesley's life. Think about it. He impeded a fiery fate. His, his efforts to escape were futile. Uh, there was an unexpected heroic rescue. He was free, not of his own accord. He had no power to contribute to his salvation, but he just had to trust that it happened. And now he had to trust again. By faith, God did indeed love him. And once that realization was clear for him in his life, he was, he was changed forever. In fact, it so transformed him that the message of love began to transform everything about his life and then everything around in his life. The, mire, the, the fire metaphor came to the surface again in some of his sermons. He, he said this, catch on fire and others will love to come and watch you burn. Wesley discovered that that the, the study that he did in 1 John was indeed correct. 
that God was indeed love. And, and th- he said, this is how, he repeats it, this is how God shows his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And Wesley would emphasize this all the time. This is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then he would say, everywhere he went, friends, because God loves us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete. There is an assurance. It's made perfected in us. We can truly love ourselves. We can truly love this God. We can truly love our neighbor. Now, others like the Lutherans and the Calvinists of the time they would argue that God is sovereign and, or that God was holy and God was the judge and the jury of our lives. And Wesley said, yeah, 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 of course, that, that's true. But he said, the characteristics that you guys are talking about don't start with sovereignty and holiness. The characteristics that you think about in regards to God start with love. The starting place, Wesley said, is love. And in love, God is not only the judge and the juries, the doctor and the healer, the father and the husband, the bridegroom, and he's the always, 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 never leave you faithful friend. He said love describes both the heart of God and the content and the goal of salvation. And his methodology from that point forward, what the Methodists did flowed from this understanding That God's love can be made complete in you and in me. And you and I can have full assurance of God's love for us. He said it can happen. It can happen in you. It can happen in us. And not only that, it can happen through us. It was this idea, Wesley thought, that Jesus' command that we read here in Mark It's because of this that this command that Jesus gives us can be lived out. Because of the love of God demonstrated in the death of his son on the cross and his resurrection, in a response to the love that we have assurance of, that we know that people are empowered to then love God with their whole hearts and their whole minds and all of their spirits, and they do this by demonstrating the love that they have for God to the world by loving their neighbor. This was not just a concept or an idea or a doctrine that Wesley thought about or that he read in a book. It it was that, and he wrote about it, and he read about it a lot, but it's, it's more. For Wesley, it was something that could be experienced. And then Wesley said, this is just amazing to me, then the more that you experience it, the more that it begins to happen to you, It's something that he experienced, and then he began to experience more and more and more and more as he practiced love into his life. In other words, the more you love, the more you have an assurance of love. He called this the gospel, the love of God and the love of neighbor. And when this happened, amazing things took place. He started started participating in open-air preaching And he went into the fields, and he rode from town to town, sometimes as much as 100 miles a day. He would set up these preaching points because poor people weren't allowed in church. 
I don't know if you knew that, but church people at that time were actually very wealthy, and they would literally buy their pews for their families, and they had their names on it. He was one of the first to empower women preachers. He started ordaining people uh, around him because clergymen wouldn't join with him in his effort to, to share the message and to spread the message of love. He helped the underprivileged and the poor, not out of duty anymore, but actually out of love. In 1746, he started a medical dispensary. Uh, he wrote a, be- a bestseller called Positive Physic for those who could not afford uh, a doctor, but they had a manual to know how to take care of themselves. In 1748, he founded a school for children that were too poor to go to school. He was an ardent abolitionist. And in 1774, he wrote a piece called Thought on Slavery, which influenced Granville Sharp and William Wilberforce, who was Abraham Lincoln's hero. And he worked with these two to eradicate the slave trade in Europe over a hundred years before it ever happened here in the U.S. And not only that, he experienced real persecution because of some of his methods. At one point, some dissenters uh, let loose a live bull in one of his church meetings. Uh, When they had to build these buildings, they started building them without windows because all the rock throwers kept breaking all the windows. So they just gave up building buildings without windows. At one point, he was tangled with the mob because people were finding freedom from alcohol addiction. So they sent a champion boxer to go to one of Wesley's meetings to beat him up. But he was so transformed by the message of love that he, that he found salvation in that meeting. <laughs> Wesley believed that everything that we do is a means of grace. It's a way by which God expresses his love to us. Our ordinary lives, our coming and going, are in fact the way in which God loves us. And Wesley urged us to visit the poor and those who are in prison as much for our own sake as for those we are helping. My friend Ryan Barnes, is that you, some of you know, is a fabulous Wesleyan. He doesn't even know what that means. When we were working to get these chairs here for the 8th Street Church, we were working with this guy named Johnny. We had bought these chairs used. Uh, John, we spent the day with Johnny. We heard Johnny's story. Johnny was really rough around the edges. He had, he had been a gangbanger on the east side, and at 13, he was shot right here in the neck. He had a gigantic scar. Now he's got three kids. He's trying to make a life of himself. He helped us move these chairs, and Ryan told me later that day, I invited Johnny to church. And I said, really? He said, yeah. I'm not sure if Johnny needs us, but I sure know that we need Johnny. This is what it means to be a Wesleyan. When we visit the poor and those who are in prison, we are are shaped into the love of God. Everything is a means of grace. And I want to see myself in the Wesley story. Weekly, I go to the county jail to visit a former student of mine who's there with the charge of armed robbery. He's in He's in real trouble. And when I'm down there at that hellhole, I am fully aware that I am in the tension of good and evil. But I'm confident that I'm in the presence of Jesus himself. At at one point, somebody sent me a text and said, thank you for visiting him. And and my thought, I, I immediately texted back, Jesus died for him. And somebody needs to sit with him until he realizes it. And then... I realize that someone, lots of someones, have sat with me until I've realized it. 
I am a brand plucked from the burning. I want this kid to be a brand plucked from the burning. I want you to be a brand plucked from the burning. So much more could be said, but this is one of the many things that has impacted me and the way I want to lead this church. I want to proclaim the love of God so that you might have a deep assurance that His love and that His truth, which is revealed in Christ, that it's revealed that Christ has died for you. I want you to have an assurance that your sins are forgiven, that He is the judge and the jury of your sins, but He's also the doctor that heals you, the Father that protects you. He's the husband that is faithful, the bridegroom that looks at you with favor. And he is the faithful friend that will never leave you. I want you, like, like Wesley, to have this deep sense of assuredness. And as a community, I want us, even on the difficult days to believe it, to in faith practice this way into love so that we might experience it together deeper and wider than we could possibly dream. And one of the ways in which we practice it in faith, as we, we come to this table. And we do it every single week. John Wesley believed that the Lord's Supper was to be the grand channel whereby the grace of His Spirit was conveyed to all the souls of the children of God. Listen to what he says. The grace of God here at this table confirms the forgiveness of our sins, and it enables us to leave our sins. As our bodies are strengthened by bread and wine, so are souls by these elements that represent the body and blood of Christ. This is the food for our souls. This gives us the strength to perform the duties of love. It it leads us on into the perfection of love. If therefore we have any regard for the plain command of Christ that we should come to this table every time we gather, and if we desire that our sins should be forgiven... If we wish for strength to believe, if we want to obey and love God, then we should not neglect the opportunity of coming and receiving the Lord's Supper. The table of our Lord is the way we practice this fabulous story into our lives. So I want to remind you that Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, he took the bread and he gave thanks, and he broke it and he said, My friends, this is my body which is broken for you. And whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood. And whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. By grace, we get to come to this table. By grace, we get to know that we are loved. By grace, we are empowered to go and share this love with one another. And together, we get to story ourselves, act ourselves into faith that this love is for all. All who are open to the transforming work of Christ are welcome to this table. And you are welcome in this community. Everyone who is open to believe this good work and wants to receive the grace that comes from God, you are welcome to this table. Here it is, but here is where we live into the tension. The tension that our story can be changed while the story still tries to pretend that it has, the evil story tries to pretend that it has a hold on us. But, 
But do not be afraid because there is an assurance that is extended to you. Please hear me when I say the words of Jesus to you. My friends, come to this table and do not worry because I have overcome the world. I want to let you know that we want no barriers so our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic. But I want to invite you to to exit the left side of your row, move down one of our aisles and come to one of these servers with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not take communion here at the H Street Church. We receive it. We know that everything that we've received is a gift. So receive it. Then dip the bread into the cup. Listen to what these servers have to tell you. Eat it and then be thankful. For any reason you cannot come down our aisle, Paul will come and he will serve you. Just raise your hand and we would be glad, he would be glad to come and bring the elements to you. My friends, this is a gift to you. So when you are ready, I invite you to come.